Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Morning Commute, the newly diagnosed patient. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. This URL can be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete three-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC. Joining us today is Dr. Nair Rizvi, who is the Price Family Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City. And Dr. Sarah Goldberg, who is an Associate Professor of Medical Oncology at the Yale Cancer Center, Yale School of Medicine in New Haven. In this episode, Drs. Rizvi and Goldberg discuss the current standards of care regarding patient workup, diagnosis, as well as PDL1 expression and the emerging immunotherapy biomarkers in treatment selection for non-small cell lung cancer. I am your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Rizvi will begin our discussion. Welcome to our uh, first podcast on non-small cell lung cancer. Um, it's entitled, A New Patient Walks Into the Clinic, um, or these days, uh, a new patient uh, is being seen on a Zoom call. Um, Sarah, do you want to talk about uh, your uh, experience with new visits um, in person versus Zoom these days and how that's been going? Yeah, hi, Nair. That's a, that's a really interesting point. You know, we, most of our new patients are still coming in in person, but we are seeing some people through telemedicine. It's a different um, way of meeting someone for the first time, especially. Um, it can be challenging, but I think it is good during these unusual and difficult times that uh, it's better to have some distance in some cases. So we are doing some telemedicine, virtual, new patient visits. Nothing yeah. like being in person, though. No, that's true. Well, hopefully with the COVID vaccine emerging for more and more of our population, we'll have 2021 be a better year. So let's um, jump into this. Um, you know, I think we have a lot to talk about when a, a patient does uh, walk into our clinic. There's um, certainly a lot of work that has been done already uh, by the time a patient uh, comes to the medical oncologist and um, they've likely seen uh, their primary care pulmonologist or possibly a thoracic surgeon. So many of the tests have been, been ordered. Um, Sarah, do you want to just talk to some of the initial workup that you feel is required when you see the patient in your clinic? Sure. So you're right. Many times when we see the patient, it's after a lot of testing has been done. Sometimes medical oncologists are the first stop for patients who have a, uh, a suspected diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, there's many new, newer um, tests that are really important to obtain, but still the basics are so critical, right? By making sure we know the diagnosis, the histologic diagnosis, as well as the stage. Um, and so that's typically the first thing that, that I think about is, you know, what is the stage of this patient? What, do they have advanced disease, metastatic disease, or is it an early stage where we could think about a curative strategy of treatment? And so in terms of that, typically we're thinking about imaging. You know, I, I think 
CAT scans are usually, maybe x-rays are usually the first thing that patients get, but then typically CAT scans, are, are, we have that information typically before someone comes to us in medical oncology. Um, I think a PET scan is still important for most patients, maybe with the exception of very early stage um, uh, cancers, although in medical oncology, we don't tend to see those initially anyway. Um, but PET scans, I think, are still very important. They can give us information about the stage, about the extent of metastatic disease, and then brain imaging. So I almost always get brain imaging on my patients with um, definitely with stage four disease, but even stage two and three, I think it's important to get brain imaging because brain metastases are, are, are so common in, in lung cancer. And then in terms of the histology, you know, I, I think, again, a lot of times patients have biopsies before they come to us. If they don't have a biopsy, I'm always thinking about, you know, where can we get a, a biopsy from that can give me information on the stage? So if there's a concern for a distant site of disease, um, especially if it's a limited, it appears to be limited disease um, with one or, or just a few metastases, I'm always going to want to try to get a biopsy from those sites. Um, and then also making sure I'm getting enough tissue. So, you know, FNAs are something that I rarely have send patients for anymore because we, we do want information from that biopsy beyond what the histology is. So yes, histology still is really important. If I if I have kind of some sort of vague uh, report from my pathologist, I'll I'll go back to them and say, well, what is the specific histology? Can can we can we understand that? Sometimes that's not possible, but sometimes additional markers may be helpful. And then you know I think there's more uh, nuanced details about the biopsy and and what we want to get from that based on the stage. So maybe before that's we get great. into that, is there anything else that we wanted to talk about with uh, workup and staging? And then maybe we could talk more about the molecular testing. Yeah, I can I can sort of uh, talk to a little about molecular testing next. Um, no, I think that's great. For this discussion, I think we'll mostly be talking about going forward, uh, talking about advanced stage patients where surgery is not going to be an option for patients in terms of determining what the right systemic treatment is. And certainly in histology in terms of um, differentiating adenocarcinoma versus squamous versus small cell, I think is, is obviously very important. Within adenocarcinoma, it you know, really is incredibly important to, to have the molecular testing results. And sometimes when we see people from that have had biopsies elsewhere, it can be challenging to track down you know, their molecular results. So, but I think it's um, really important not to start um, treatment until you know what the molecular status is. And certainly the we, you know, we have a number of mutations or, or um, gene rearrangements that we look for to make sure they don't have a druggable um, target. Um, the most common ones being EGFR mutations and ALK rearrangements where we have FDA approved um, therapies, targeted therapy which trumps chemotherapy or immunotherapy should be the first um, treatment of choice. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, your approach at Yale in terms of your molecular testing that you do there? Sure. So it's actually an evolving story about what we're doing here at Yale. Um, so as you mentioned, EGFR and ALK are two of the most common um, actionable mutations or alterations. But, you know, it seems like every, every other month we're finding out another um, alteration that we have a, actually a really effective drug for it, it. You know, even in the last year, we've had several new targeted therapies approved for different alterations. So, you know, our, our approach has had been to get a, a fairly limited panel that included EGFR and BRAF, which I think are two of the, the most important um, genes to test because of, they, they can be mutated and they have uh, targeted therapies associated with them. 
And then we also were getting elk and Ross one by fish. But again, because there's now so many more alterations um, that are important to know, even for first-line therapy, we've kind of decided to broaden our panel. So we were doing this more limited testing because it came back fairly quickly. And then if that was negative, we were kind of almost reflexing it to a larger panel. Um, but because these are so important and actually, again, it can be used for first-line treatment um, in many cases, we're now starting out with a larger panel. And I think that that's really become more common at, at many places to, to start out with a very broad panel. And so I don't consider my workup complete until I have information on EGFR, ALK, and ROS. Those are kind of the three three ones that we've known about for a while, but now also BRAF, uh, MET exon 14 skipping mutations, um, RET fusions, and also NTREC. So some of those get to be pretty rare. You know, NTREC is exceedingly rare, but it happens, and uh, it really is important to, to have that information. So I think all of those are, Nair, did I forget any, by the way, before I move on? I think I got them all. You got them all. So, you know, I think um, those are all so important to, uh, to test, I think, for a patient with metastatic adenocarcinoma. Ideally, before you start treatment, it's not always possible. Um, there are some cases that patients are really sick and need to be treated before you get all of that information, but I would say the vast majority of my patients that I, I see, I, I'm able to get that testing done so I can kind can, of can choose the best treatments for them up front. The other thing that we're, we're doing a lot more these days is, is using liquid biopsies, so circulating tumor DNA testing to, to get that molecular analysis. Um, there are patients, just as you said, where they come in and they had a biopsy at another hospital and then they come to see me and and they're pretty sick, and I know that it will, will take, you know, even just a couple extra days to get that tissue here, or for whatever reason, I think, you know, I'm worried there's a limited sample, or the testing hasn't gotten even started yet for whatever reason, and that's, a, that's when I'll, I'll think about getting, um, sending blood for, for circulating tumor DNA, because I can get that information typically back even faster than, than some of the tissue-based testing, and it can be a, a, a good source of, of information that, that you can get back quickly. Um, if you find something on, on CTDNA analysis, um, I, I think that that is in now data that shows that that's just as good as getting tissue testing and, and potentially even more comprehensive. So I will often get that these days as well. That's great. And, you know, also clinically, I mean, it's not an absolute guide, but you're more likely to see, um, you know, some of these druggable targets in patients who are never smoked or minimally smoked um, versus those patients who do have a prior smoking history. And you know, about a quarter of our patients with lung cancer, um, you know, never, never smoke. And so we, you know, we may do more, even more extensive genetic testing, DNA and RNA-based um, testing on, on some of these patients to really try to determine whether they have an oncogenic driver. And certainly, um, you know, if a patient um, tests negative for a druggable um, target, you know, I think the other, the other part you know, which is really important in terms of thinking about therapy is PBL1 expression. This is a pretty fast immunohistochemical um, stain that's um, done pretty routinely at um, uh, really everywhere. And uh, um, determining PBL1 expression will really give us a clue in terms of the likelihood of immune checkpoint blockade immunotherapy in terms of likelihood of working. It's certainly not um, an absolute biomarker, but um, you know, we now have drugs approved um, first line based on level of PL1 expression. Um, the threshold that's typically being used now is a 50% threshold. So about a third of our patients that we see with lung cancer will have um, a positive PL1 expression. 
Um, so Sarah, do you want to talk about first-line therapy a little bit um, in terms of immunotherapy options to focus on to start with in terms of what are our options in terms of immunotherapy first-line? Sure. So I agree with you. I think pdl one expression testing is really important. I, I try to get it for all my patients with advanced disease. And the reason is that it really helps me figure out the best first-line treatment for patients. As you said, the, the cutoff of 50% has been shown to be an important one for predicting uh, for benefit from um, single agent immune therapy. So for patients who have that high expression, more than 50% PD-L1 expression, I would uh, you know, be, be very happy to, for most of them to consider a single agent um, immune therapy, um, PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor. There are some patients where I might be more hesitant that you know they may need additional therapy besides just a single agent, but but I, I think for again for most patients the PDL1 really helps to define the the group of patients who has a, a chance a good chance of benefit from even just single agent uh, immune therapies. Pembrolizumab was the first drug that we we uh, knew about as a single agent to um, to have benefit in the first line setting in in, in the high PDL1 patients. That's the drug that I've been using for for some time. I think that's probably pretty common among people who treat uh, patients with lung cancer. But now we also have other drugs that, that are showing really significant promise and, and some of which have been approved now. So atezolizumab also as a single agent um, in the high PDL one expressors is, is also uh, approved and an option for patients. And then there's some other drugs that are, are kind of now, so we're starting to see some really exciting data and, and at some point maybe approved. And simiflimab I think is a good example of that where as a single agent compared to chemotherapy, similar to these other trials, it also shows really good evidence of benefit with a, a survival advantage um, compared to chemotherapy. So that one's not approved yet, but I think it very well could be based on the very positive data. And so I think that that high pdl one expression is still really important to, to detect. So, you know, so I, I hear sometimes people saying, well, why do we even need pdl one expression? Because we could just give everybody chemo and, and immunotherapy combination. But I think it's really nice to be able to treat patients with single agent drugs or single agent regimens when, when we're able to. And it's those high expressors where I, I typically feel comfortable with that. For the, the lower expressors, the one to 49% patients, um, PD-L1 patients, I, I think you still could consider single agent Pembro, but typically um, I, I usually think about combinations for those patients, usually with chemotherapy and, um, and immune therapy, although Ipinevo is now also an option there. And then same for the, the PD-L1 negative patients, the, you know, I, I, I don't think most people would consider single agent for those patients, but uh, combinations are important for those patients, in, you know, immune therapy plus either chemotherapy or even considering, a, um, again, Ipinevo for those patients. Um, despite lack of approval in that population, I think that still could be a consideration based on the, the promising data there. So I think we have a lot of options and the pdl one really helps to guide that, that decision, which I, again, is why I think it's so important to, to get in, in the initial workup. Yeah, I think that, you know, the pdl one um, you know, is, is, you know, first, number one, make sure they don't have a, a target, you know, target therapy option. And number two, what the pdl one is and deciding whether to give uh, PD-1 or PD-L1 monotherapy versus uh, chemo combination. And there's a number of chemotherapy combinations now with pembrolizumab, with atezolizumab, with tezolizumab and bevacizumab and, and, and chemotherapy. And so I think, but in terms of just the broad picture, deciding monotherapy versus chemo combinations, um, I think that, you know, PD-L1 does help you. I have to say there's there's definitely some patients that are uh, PDL1 more than 50%, but I will give chemotherapy and um, uh, PD1 um, too as well. It's really kind of, as you as you said, you know, weighing what 
you know, how much disease burden they have, how symptomatic they are. Um, if you're, you know, not sure, they're going to be able to wait and see if immunotherapy is effective. You may want to use a, a chemotherapy and immunotherapy combination up front. But by and large, the more than 50% um, will get Pembro or Tezolizumab. I think Semiflamab approval, I think, is another um, um, drug which will be likely approved later this year um, that's very active in the first line setting. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, whether you get you, you give um, um, every three week Pembro or whether you like get every six week regimen, which is also an option for our patients where you get double the dose, but you get it less often. Maybe during COVID, this uh, regimen got more, more um, interest, but I think for some patients that are traveling a great distance, it can be useful. Your thoughts on that? Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC1 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. COVID-19 has impacted clinical practice around the world. Drs. Rizvi and Goldberg discuss how immunotherapy dosing has been impacted by the pandemic. Let's rejoin the discussion. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say the same thing, that, that I was using the every three-week regimen that you know the, the trials used and and uh, what I what I was accustomed to doing, and then during COVID, you know, when, when the COVID pandemic started, we we all talked about ways that we could limit um, potential exposures of patients to to the you know to the clinic, and how we can bring people in less often, but still do it safely. And that was one of the the big strategies that we used was changing to every six weeks Pembro. Um, then when things quieted down over the summer here in Connecticut, we it kind of just still stuck. You know, I think the data looks looks good comparing the two doses. I think. And, and regimens, and I think it's reasonable to do the every six weeks treatment. So that's that's now typically what what we're what I'm doing for for most patients. Can I ask you a question, Nairo? Are you getting PDL1 expression on earlier stage patients? Are you getting this on stage three? We have been getting it pretty. We we tend to get it reflexively on early stage and stage three patients. Um, so we do get a PDL1 score and a molecular score, molecular results on really everyone that, that we see. I was going to ask, and are you getting molecular testing on your uh, non or on your on your squamous patients or small cell patients, or is it is it just the adenos? Yeah, so I think that's a good question in terms of squamous. Whether we do molecular testing, we we haven't been unless they're never smokers or have a minimal smoking history, and and, and then we'll um, we'll get it in that case where they may may have an actionable. Uh, mutation or, or rearrangement. Certainly with clinical trials that we're doing, we're, we're getting it on, on, on our screens, but in terms of standard care, not routine. Yeah, I agree. Um, we get it on people who have, who have a light or never smoking history, but I agree. Otherwise, it's not really probably necessary to do in most patients. So I think PDL one is is a good guide. I think we we all have been looking for the last you know, number of years for better biomarkers. Um, um, certainly tumor mutational burden has been um, researched quite a bit in terms of uh, immune checkpoint blockade use. Um, uh, basically, uh, tumor mutational burden is um, really counting all the um, expressed um, mutations that a patient has and sort of accumulation of uh, genetic damage that's uh, present within the tumor. Um, initially, we were doing this off of colexome sequencing, uh, but now, um, you know, with, with certain formulas, you can uh, determine it off more targeted gene panels, you know, ranging from 300 to 500 genes that are routinely used at many uh, commercial laboratories. 
there is certainly data that that patients with higher two medication burden are more likely to respond to immune checkpoint blockade, but there's also some conflicting data in that space as well. So Sarah, you're gonna tell me, uh, is tumor mutational burden useful or useless? Or do you use it? Um, is it worth getting? Yeah, so so there is there is a, absolutely a signal there in, in, in many studies, including yours, <laughs> that uh, that that it can be useful in predicting who will benefit. But I, I don't know that we're there yet to use it as part of standard of care. I think it does predict for benefit, but I don't know that it clearly helps us decide which patients to treat and how to treat them well enough to use it clinically. Um, you know, I, I think now first line patients are all getting immune therapy regardless of PDL1 expression. It just depends on if you use it as a single agent or in combination. And so if something like tumor mutation burden could help us decide that, that, that would, I think, be potentially useful. But I, I don't think we're there yet to be able to, to say that it should be part of the algorithm of, of how to select patients. Maybe one day. I think, you know, it's still absolutely an ongoing area of, of research. And I think there may be something there and there may be a way to use it, but I, I don't think it's ready yet to, to be used clinically, at least not in my practice. Yeah, I think that's right. I and mean, we, you know, we do tend to get it for our new patients, but we don't necessarily wait for the results. I mean, I think we want to get the key mutation data. Um, I have had scenarios where, you know, a patient may have started on, you know, monotherapy with PD-1 inhibitors, and, um, you know, I wasn't sure if they were responding or whether it's working or, you know, if there, were, there was some pseudo progression. You know, the patient had a high TMB, so we sort of persisted, and um, the patient did eventually respond. But sometimes it can take time for these therapies to work. Another therapy had a patient who was getting chemotherapy in Pembro, and, you know, he was a elderly gentleman, and he was having a really rough time tolerating it, but he came back with an extremely high tumor patient burden. So we actually dropped the chemotherapy earlier than we would have otherwise. So I think it can help shape your therapy, give you another piece of information, but it certainly wouldn't be um, the first thing on your decision tree in terms of using um, to make decisions. Yeah, I think it can give you more confidence that that you're on the right track on a treatment. But I, I don't know that you can use it as a, an initial predictor and and using it use it for selection. So I, those are those are good examples of how it might push you a little bit one way or the other, or give you more confidence in what you're doing. Um, but I think still, even though PDL1 has so many challenges and flaws, it still is our best predictor in lung cancer, and it's different in other diseases. But in lung cancer, it, it definitely can predict for benefit. Uh, the challenge is that even the high PDL1 expressors may not benefit, and the low ones may. In the early days of immune therapy, when we were using it beyond first line and using it in second line and beyond, um, I had a few patients I treated with single agent immune therapy who were PDL1 zero, and they did fantastically well for for many years. So it's it's just it's, you know, it's clearly not a perfect biomarker by any means, but I think that still is our our best way to select patients. And um... Maybe some of the trials will be giving treatment for two years and then stopping. Some of them will be continuing indefinitely. So what do you do? I mean, uh, are you a two-year person or are you a continue indefinitely person? Oh, I'm a confused person. <laughs> I think this area is really a tough one. Um, you know, most of the trials or many of the trials, all the Pembroke trials, as far as I know, were two-year treatments. Um, and then patients stopped after two years, even if they were continuing to respond. And so, you know, the, the Pembro trials look amazing in terms of the benefit. And so that gives you, I think, good reason to think, oh, you know, we, we could stop at two years because that's what the trials did. Um, if you look more into the details of, of some of those trials, 
Many patients continue to respond beyond two years despite stopping, but there are some who progress. Problem is we don't know for sure whether it's because they stopped or they would have progressed anyway. And then also we're starting to get data on whether retreatment is useful. And I think, again, it, we don't really know yet. I think in some cases, clearly when someone stops treatment and gets retreated, they benefit and other times they don't. I think we know from some studies that one year is not enough, two years may be enough. I, well, basically what I do, because it's still in my mind, not a clear answer is I discuss it with patients. I say, we don't, we don't have enough information to know for sure. There's still a risk of toxicity, although it's fairly low after the two year mark. I've seen it personally where patients are doing great and then they run into severe toxicity beyond two years. And so I tend to uh, lean towards stopping at two years, but if someone feels very strongly that they want to continue despite not having great data on that and they're doing great with no side effects, I, I might consider continuing on. But I, I, I'm looking forward to hopefully some more data in the future because I'm not sure what, what really the, the, the best practice is for patients. What do you do? Um, it's sort of case by case. I mean, I, you know, I've had a patient Ipilimumab and Nivolumab for over four years now, and she's still has some measurable disease, but you know it's sort of stable, and some nodes sort of wax and wane, and she's continuing on. And other patients who had a complete radiographic and metabolic response after two years, and I'll stop them. So um, I think the chemo and Pembro, I think it's a little more clear cut where you just kind of keep going as long as you're tolerating it. But for the immunotherapy only, I think it's sort of you know, case by case, depending on the magnitude of response, how they're tolerating it, what they have measurable and, and things like that. Great, well, thank you, Sarah. Um, it was a good discussion on, uh, you know, a new patient that walks into the clinic and how we manage them. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC1 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. If you have missed any of our episodes or would like to listen to them again, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC to find a listing of all three podcasts.